Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in. We've kept the fire in the hearth low this evening. It's been a bit of a warm day. Spring has found its way quickly into the Shenandoah Valley. I'd spent a couple pleasant days just a bit south of here, in Stanton, Virginia, with my wife, and we happened to catch a very well-done production of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. It's about a deal with the devil, so it's topical to us. So, on to our evening, yeah? Some months ago, we had added two editors to the show. One is Philip Oldham, who has been serving wrangling our generous narrators, getting them stories, listening for needed edits, so on and so forth. Our other editor ran into some scheduling conflicts. As of such, our submission queue has been a bit backed up, and for that, we apologize. However, that is now coming to a close. We've added Rock Manor to our staff as our submissions editor, and he's already making good headway in picking up on that backlog. He's narrated a few stories for us, including recently from episode 151 with Richard Barber's Murden's Hollow. We've got a few other recordings from him as well that we'll be airing in the future. So, we have two things from our editors this evening. The first will be from Philip, the second from Rock. First up, we will be hearing an interview with Michael Brent Collings. Michael Brent Collings is an internationally best-selling novelist and number one bestseller in the U.S. and has been one of Amazon's top-selling horror writers for years. He is one of the most successful indie horror writers in the United States, as well as a produced screenwriter and member of the WGA, HWA, and several other writing groups with cool-sounding letters. He's also a martial artist and cooks some awesome waffles. He's published his first paying work, a short story for a local paper, at the age 
of 15. He won numerous awards and scholarships for creative writing while at college and subsequently became the person who had more screenplays advanced to quarterfinals and semifinals in the prestigious Nicol Fellowship screenwriting competition in a single year than anyone else in the history of the competition. And now, a bit more information about Michael Brent Collings from the author himself. So, Mr. Collings, um, thank you for offering the interview with us. And tell me a little bit about yourself for our listeners. Who are you? What got you uh, into this whole scene of living the writer's life? And what made you decide to start writing? <laughs> uh, well, my name is Michael Brent Collings. And for those of you who aren't looking at my name, my first name is Michael Brent. And um, and I actually go by that. And it's not because I have a solid gold stick up my butt. It's because there are like 100 Michaels in my family. And this way, at a crowded gathering, I know who's actually talking to me. And I can ignore the crap out of everybody else. Because <laughs> as a writer, I have no social skills. So I mean, it's just... <laughs> It's one less interaction I have to deal with. But um, I'm one of the top-selling uh, horror independent horror writers in the United States. I am a bestseller in 40-plus countries. I am one of Amazon's – I've been one of Amazon's top-selling horror writers for – three years, going on three years straight, which is pretty good for a list that updates hourly. Um, I'm also a screenwriter. I've written several, well, I've written a lot of movies and several have been produced that have um, names you would recognize, but I don't tend to throw out the names of the movies just because what happens a lot with screenplays is you give them this awesome, wonderful thing. And then you watch the movie with your mouth up open going, what happened? So, <laughs> so my baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not as attached as all that because really I'm kind of a whore. And so once the check clears, I'm really thrilled no matter what. But, um, but it is weird, you know, and, and, and people go, what movie did you write? And, and unless you go, unless your answer is the Avengers, you know, they're going to look at you kind of like either, I don't know that one or worse. Oh, that one, you know, and I don't like either of those reactions. <laughs> so, um, but it, but you can take my word for it. Even getting kind of a mediocre movie uh, made these days with a decent budget is pretty tough stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so yes, yeah, so that's what I do. And and I was a lawyer for about ten years before that. I I failed at my fallback job, and I uh, I failed my way into succeeding at my dream job because I do I do life bass backwards basically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully we can all fail as hard as you. I mean, seriously. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're an accomplished screenwriter. You've you, you've been number one on Amazon for three years. Um, and I, I've personally read uh, your your Colony series, and it's absolutely fantastic. Oh, um, thank yeah, and curse you for your stupid cliffhangers, man. <laughs> I didn't intend that. I didn't intend that. And, and since you've, you've probably read the, um, the end note for the first one. So, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't like I set out to be a Saturday morning serial. It's just, I literally, I, I do, um, I tend to do a short outline of my books and it's just, it's just long enough so that I don't go wandering too astray from the idea and, you know, write myself into a corner or do something ridiculous. But I also want to enjoy myself as I, as I write, you know, I don't want to be taking dictation off, off of my overly detailed synopsis. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of have fun on the journey. So I had this, you know, kind of 15 bullet point note uh, or uh, outline. 
and I'm writing the book and I'm 200 and some pages in and I've almost gotten to point two. And at this point I talked to my wife and I said, so how do you feel about me writing a single book over the next six years? And she said, yeah, why don't you break that up? And, and my wife's like scorching hot and she's super nice and smart and I don't want her to divorce me. So I tend to do the things she tells me to do. <laughs> and I'm guessing from this slotting that she's in the room at the moment. <laughs> No, 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 no. But she has eyes everywhere. <laughs> so that's where you got the idea for the camera and the underwear. Uh, yeah, mm. that's right. No, she's, you know, she's the love of my life. And I, um, I do think it's important that we mention people that have supported us. And, you know, as much as uh, people look at me and go, wow, he's successful. I mean, a writer's life is tremendously difficult and stressful. And my only job security is the paycheck I've just received. You know, there, I know tons of writers who have had fantastic careers. And then 20 years later, they can't land a job or sell a book to save their lives. And, and my wife has accompanied me on this journey and supported me. And never once has she complained about the craziness that it entails. And so, you know, even if all of her arms and legs and other body parts fell off and I was left with like a talking head, she'd still be my better than dream girl because I just couldn't have dreamed up anything like her. So on that note, any new story ideas for next things? Uh, yeah, wife talking head. Yeah, I've got one actually. It's actually called Talking Head Wives, and it's about <laughs> <a>, no. <laughs> that's like an episode of Futurama. That's totally not. That's totally not my gig. <laughs> uh, so I do have a, a question for you. It's um, kind of interesting. A lot of writers that I know. Um, especially their spouses, they, they work in tandem a lot where um, the writer will write and the spouse will um, edit or help market or things along those lines. Um, how involved are you and your wife together in this process? Or is she more of the, I love you, baby, go write and come get me when you need to get out of the story? <laughs> well, occasionally I bounce ideas off her because she's a very bright person. And if I'm just way off base, she'll tell me. And she's, But she's a bright person who's not a writer, which is actually really helpful because I can use her as a sort of an inform, informal market survey and go, hey, is this a grabby idea? And she'll look at me and go, I wouldn't see that movie. And I'm sitting there going, we're talking about a book, you know. But, you know, it's a good point that she's she's not taken by the base concept or something about the characters doesn't arrest her. So she helps on that level uh, occasionally. Um, she 100%, I mean, she has everything to do with my success because if she didn't be watching the family and watching the kids, and honestly, she takes care of me because I have some mental health issues. I have major depressive disorder and OCD and a couple of little fun quirks like that that, you know, I will wake her up at three in the morning and be like, the universe hates me, you know, and she's the one that keeps me from being face down in a ditch. So I can't say enough how much she has to do with anything I've achieved. Um, but on a, you know, like on a hardcore, we write the story together. The one thing that she does that's invaluable is she's my first real audience. So once the book is pretty much locked down and I've gone through it and, you know, cleaned it up, I read the whole thing out loud to her. So I, I take a couple days off and, you know, we'll get a babysitter for a day or two because we homeschool our kids. Hmm. So, 
they'll, you know, they'll be watched by someone else and I'll just sit in a chair and read until my throat is dry. And then I'll wait a half hour and read until my throat is dry. And I watch her. And again, she's a great audience. If I, if I see her nodding off, I've gotten boring. If she makes this like scrunched up face, I did something that made no sense. And she's just a fantastic kind of final quality assurance. And then I can go back and fix any, any problems she's noted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned that you're, you're struggling with some mental health issues, and I know a lot of writers deal with that. Um, in our initial uh, conversation setting this interview up, you mentioned how hopeful um, you feel that horror as a genre can be. Um, can you elaborate on that or, or how you've used that in your own uh, journey of health? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I meet – I go to these interviews and I, you know, or I call in on these interviews or whatever. And it, and it's funny, all the ones that uh, people aren't really into the horror genre, they all say the same thing afterwards. Oh, you're such a nice person. You know, like they expected me to come with blood dripping off of my face and maybe a bat or two to chew on through the course of the interview. And, and I'm just kind of this normal, you know, guy who lives on a street with other families and kids that run up and down. I live on this really kind of normal Norman Rockwell street, you know, and, and, um, the thing that I found is that horror writers, tend to be the nicest, coolest, kindest people because they're dealing with their crap, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and they're, they're, it's not that they're, the successful ones aren't imposing their burdens on other people because that's, I call that therapy. That's not, that's not entertainment and that's not good writing. But the good writers, the good horror writers are saying, this scares me and maybe it scares other people. And maybe if I talk about it in an entertaining way, it will make the world make a little bit of sense. So, Mm. you know, for me personally, very often as somebody who suffers with major depressive disorder, you know, something that makes me just want to throw up is when somebody in my situation is having a tough day and someone else goes, cheer up. I'm going, okay, well, next time you break your leg, I'll just walk over and say, hey, if you have happy thoughts, you can walk your way to the hospital. <laughs> and, you know, it makes no sense because there are biological things that are that are happening. Um, mm-hmm. And so people with major depressive disorder, they don't get to live a life where hope operates properly. That is a sense of their proper relationship to the universe that allows them to see a tomorrow full of possibilities. Mm-hmm. They don't get to, they don't get to have that. And so what we do is we exist for the hope of future hope. Well, maybe if I just hang in there long enough tomorrow, I'll feel slightly better and won't want to kill myself as much and we'll go from there. And so from that perspective, it definitely, um, my writing is definitely affected by that outlook that, uh, I'm drawn to horror partly because it's a difficult terrain that the characters walk and my life has been difficult in certain respects, Mm -hmm. but if done in a, what I call the proper way, and that's not to judge people who do it, do it differently. It's just proper from my point of view, for my writing, um, when I do it properly, the people come through the difficulty and they've either learned something and been, been touched by a sort of grace that allows them into a world of possibility or they do it wrong and they fall to their knees and, you know, they're punished properly, which is, which is why also horror is very po- popular and powerful because it's a morality tale. I mean, it doesn't just examine uh, theoretical concepts and and ideas of technology and things like that, which is sort of the domain of science fiction and even fantasy. Sometimes you get down to the nitty gritty of horror, and at the base it says, "Don't do this; it's bad." Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that that's really cool about horror. I really like that. 
Hmm. You know, you're, you're saying all this and I'm reminded of a, a, a scene, um, just briefly, no spoilers, but, um, in your colony series, I, I want to say it's book two, um, renegades. Uh-huh. There's, there's a scene where your main character, Ken, um, meets up with his wife and they, they just kind of collapse into each other and they're holding each other. And, um, I have, I have it written down here. Uh, the quote <laughs> is, then they were silent, not long, just a second, just long enough to be just long enough to, for the world to take note that it hadn't won. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and listening to, to you talk about how horror is hopeful for you and how it's a way to reach out to the universe and say, this is good and this is amazing. And then this is what I need to do. And if I fail, this is how bad I can be to fail. So this scene kind of really struck home to me. Um, yeah. It's fantastic. And, oh, well, thank you. First of all, I, you know, it's all, it's funny when, whenever somebody um, says something nice about me, there's always, and this is true of all writers, no matter how seasoned or successful, unless they're total a-holes, you know, when somebody, <laughs> it's true. When, when somebody, as soon as you start feeling entitled, that's when your a-hole card gets punched. Mm. Um, but, you know, whenever somebody says to me at a con, you know, a convention or something, they walk up and say, I read your book. There's always this part of me that wants to like step back in case they take a swing. And somebody, somebody, <laughs> Somebody says, oh, I really like that part, and I kind of want to turn around and go, you're talking to me, right? But um, I'm really glad you like that part, and it does say a lot about – because if you think about what's happening around them, they have absolutely not won. I mean if nothing else, they're on book two, and I'm up to book six now. So the world is still collapsing around them, and and the line is just – it's not to say that they had they had overcome. It's just to say the world hadn't won yet, You know that they're still fighting. And, and again, I think that that's – that is the hope that a lot of people are searching for today, that that the world can be so overwhelming. And part of that is we're just barraged by images and information 24-7. And, I mean, obviously, this this interview aside, this is nothing but gold. But, <laughs> but um, you know, we've got so much useless crap coming our way, and we have to filter that out. And that takes a lot of energy. And then we have to parse through the useful stuff and figure out how it figure out how it works with our life. And that takes a lot of energy. And by the time we actually get down to the nitty gritty of doing something, it's just like, we want to throw our hands up in the air and go, screw it. I'm going to bed. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of sense of, uh, malaise, that sense of, of despair is something that is becoming really a serious problem, particularly in young kids. You know, you see that more and more, they get out of high school and they just kind of don't know what to do. They're adrift. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just need to wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to put two feet on the ground. I'm going to get up. I'm going to march forward. And you know, if it means a middle finger at the universe and saying, you haven't beat me yet, that's the first step. Sometimes, you know, we can't all be, I kind of respect and admire the people who have managed to find that inner peace and that happiness where they're smiling all the time. And part of me kind of wants to just punch them in the junk because I, <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I can appreciate that. The the far too chipper pip people. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I, oh, dude, I would love to be one because they're happy all the time. But at the same time, you know, I just, I, I I'm jealous is probably what it mm. is. So what I'm saying is not everybody has to win you know, a Nobel Peace Prize and the lottery and find out the girl they love loves them back. And, you know, all these things to have a day that matters. Someday the day, some days the day that matters is just the day that you breathe in every single time you breathe out. And that mm-hmm. is a triumph. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So the, I want to get kind of more into your brain a little bit, and that's a scary place to be. Oh, just from crap. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a saying that I love that um, writers are just having slow motion conversations with each other, and the readers mm-hmm. get to listen in. So I guess <laughs> my question for you is, who are you? Who are you having these conversations with as a writer? Oh. You know, that's a good question, and I've never been asked it before, so I'm totally unprepared. Uh, I'm, I'm talking very much to myself a lot of the time, to, to the me-me. You know, there's not like a, a cooler me or a smarter me or a funnier me. Just kind of a lot of the books are, okay, I sit down and I, I think about a situation that would be scary well, and populate it with people that I know, and then stick me somewhere in there as either an actual character or an observer or as part of a character, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I just go, what would I do now? Where would I go now? And, and so it's a conversation with a me in an alternate dimension, if you will, where this stuff is actually happening. Um, the colony series, Ken, uh, is very much based on me because he's just this normal guy. He's a history teacher and I was a lawyer. Um, and they're not the same at all, but they're kind of sedentary, normal Joe sorts of occupations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does Hapkido. I do Hapkido. I've done um, martial arts my whole life, just like Ken has. Um, so we're normal people. We've got some fighting skills, but there's nothing super special about us that would enable us to, you know, be these soldiers, these warriors of skill in a, in a zombie <laughs> apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And and so when I started writing that book, the whole first book, I mean, it takes place over the course of about eight hours, just him getting four miles across town. And mm-hmm. and that was because when I sat down to read it, I re or to write it, I realized, man, I'm a normal guy. Forget about getting to, you know, to Washington, D.C. or to a safe house or to some place where I could board it up with and find lots of ammo and bullets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would take me a good two hours to get across the street. Right. Because that's who <laughs> I am, you know. So so the conversations um, that I have are very much like that or they're just sort of cerebral questions. It's A lot of this is a, a puzzle. There's a, there's a book I wrote called The Loon. Mm-hmm. And it's about a group of people uh, in a maximum security penitentiary for the criminally insane. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it gets hit by a whiteout, by a blizzard that's so severe it knocks out all their communications, all their power. The inmates get out, so the staff has to hunker down and survive because the inmates can't leave because of the storm. And then they find out the real problem is the monster in the basement. And when I was crafting that story, I literally sat down with a pen and paper and I said, okay, what's a scary place? A prison. How could it be scarier? It's full of crazy people. How could it be scarier? It's dark. Why is it dark? You know? And Mm -hmm. so by the end of this series of questions, I had more or less mapped out the plot of the loon. Um, and that's been a really successful book for me over the last four years. It's kind of sold pretty consistently, um, with an occasional huge spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes it's it, the conversation I'm having is very kind of boring one to anybody else where I'm playing, I'm playing writer Mahjong. Basically. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So who's in your to read pile? Um, all the greatest writers are also avid readers. Who, who do you oh. read? Any major favorites that stand out to you? Yeah. I mean, my, I love Dean Koontz. I love mm-hmm. Stephen King. Um, and, and everybody says that because of the shadow they've cast over the horror landscape, but you know, there's, there's reality to the fact that they're great writers. I mean, Stephen King is one of the best storytellers of all time. 
Dean Koontz is one of the best craftsmen of all time. He's a great storyteller too, but every word of his is placed there for a certain meaning. So I think like, I don't know, if I had to be uh, sitting around a campfire, I'd probably rather have Stephen King telling me a story. If I had to be learning how to write, I would be reading Dean Koontz because he's so careful and precise with everything he does. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I also, you know, I love Orson Scott Card. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a great writer. And I know he's been involved in this whole hoo-ha about his personal views. And that kind of sucks because, A, it diminishes the reality that his stories are fantastic. And, B, I've known him for, I don't know, since I was 15. And he's always been very pleasant and nice to me. And it's very hard to um, reconcile what I know of him to the horrible, horrible things a lot of people are saying about him, which isn't to say that his opinions are not out of sync with a lot of people. But, you know, again, I I think he's being overly punished for opinion. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, get a grip, guys. It's an opinion. (laughs) Absolutely. It it goes back to the whole um, uh, Mel Gibson uh, issue of how much do you separate the, the art from the artist? Yeah. And, you know, everybody's got a line like my wife. As soon as she hears that uh, some famous movie star has just cheated on their spouse, man, she can't watch one of their movies, you know, Mm. for like 10 years. (laughs) And that's and that's because that's a a trigger thing for her. And and that's okay if it bothers you. I get that. Everybody's got things that really bother them. But I do not like a culture of witch hunts and I don't care for a culture of people that light up a fire and set it on a pyre every time somebody says something that's either not politically correct or just simply doesn't uh, line up with their own particular ideology. Mm -hmm. And I have friends on both sides of that particular question and on both sides of many, many questions. And I love them all. And I think they're all fantastic. And if they can talk with cordiality. I find that most of them have more in common than not. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes there are questions that just can't be reconciled and you have to agree to disagree. And if a fight comes, you know, this is me speaking as a martial artist. I'd rather be the guy that gets in there, bows and says, I respect you. I'm going to try and kill you face forward. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Like, there's a certain honor to be had. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it, is the difference between fighting or, or even talking about something that you're passionate about, whether it's on one side or the other, or just raging at some, at a perceived injury without yeah. any rhyme or reason to the rage. And, yeah. and I think that's one of the big things that a lot of people struggle with right now is finding the difference. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's pervaded by our media because, you know, one, one person says something, I don't know if you ever played the game telephone where mm-hmm. one person would whisper something into another person's ear and then they would whisper it into the next and they would enter the, to the next and to the next. So the first person would say, you know, my puppy loves ponies. And by the end it would say something like, I hate all Christians, you know, it would just be a totally, <laughs> you know, it, it would be a totally different message. And we're getting that um, because everybody whispers on Facebook and, uh, one of my friends is Larry Correa, who ran a, a campaign for several years to get certain people onto the Hugo Award. And I know Larry, um, he just wanted people who were who wrote what he thought was cool stuff as opposed to sort of message fiction. Right. And this year, 
um, the people that were backed by his kind of the campaign he started, even though he's no longer spearheading it, they kind of swept in a bunch of categories. And the next thing you know, Entertainment Weekly had 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 an article that was headed Hugo's swept, and I'm paraphrasing, but the key words are there by misogynist racists, you know, <laughs> and I was horrified, you know, because, and then they said, some sources say, some sources say, and if you key into what that was, it was a bunch of other people repeating hearsay who were repeating hearsay. And it's like, nobody cares enough to, to actually phone somebody up and talk to them face to face and say, Hey, I heard this awful thing about you. Is it true? I mean, can we be enemies face to face? They would just much rather uh, continue these whisper campaigns. And that's just, it's not only horrifying, it's tremendously sad for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, I find it interesting that you're focusing, and, and I completely understand it as um, being in your genre, that you're really focused on Stephen King and Dean Koontz. Um, there are a total of three authors that have gotten me to throw a book across the room. and <laughs> The end of the first Odd Thomas book was one of those events. Um, oh, anyway, no spoilers. No, yeah. no, no spoilers, <laughs> but if you haven't read it yet, be sit in a padded room because you will yeah. throw that book yeah. um in a but, good way yeah absolutely it's i've read it five times now but yeah um i find it interesting that you're focusing on them um as opposed to like the john grishams um because you you are a lawyer <laughs> you, you were a lawyer for 10 years um what what made you decide to go the stephen king route instead of the john grisham route and write courtroom drama and stuff that you had that personal experience in rather than, I don't know, exploring the inner darkness in the horror <laughs> genre? Well, part of it would be if it was my personal experience, it would have just been like chapter one, a man read thousands and thousands of boring pages. <laughs> the end, you know, court, court. And I was a litigator. I was somebody who actually went to court. A lot of, a lot of lawyers never see the inside of a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just tremendously boring. I knew I wanted to be a writer but I knew also I didn't want to be, you know, like a 40-year-old guy bringing women that he was dating home and, and saying, any day, baby, I'm going to make it big. You trust me. <laughs> so I became a lawyer because it was it was sort of a good fallback. It was something I had an affinity for in that I could argue and, you know, not argue in, in that I like getting up in people's faces because I don't care for that. But, you know, I could put a logical thought process together and, and make um, – bullet points out of it and try and explain things to people. And, and so I became a lawyer and I worked at that as a job that I would do while I was writing on the side. Mm -hmm. So I never liked being a lawyer on a level of let's write about this. Let's, or even on a level of let's get out there and write some wrongs in the legal system or help people. I did help people when I could. And that was the only part of my job I liked was when I was doing something for free. <laughs> um, but none of it was, you know, anything exciting. I was mostly just sitting in a room reading lots and lots of documents and calling up the other side and going, yeah, so page 7,654, you know, that sinks your case, right? You know, mm -hmm. and um, so when I got out, I it was never a question that I would not be doing uh, this kind of writing because – or the kind of writing that I'm doing because I grew up around it. My dad was the world expert on Stephen King for 20 years or so. Mm. And, and that's not hyperbole. I mean, he was, he was the guy, he was probably the first um, member of academia who took him seriously and wrote a series of scholarly book length treatises on him. Oh, wow. um, 
So if you've got if you've got a Stephen King book in your local college or your local high school, and that's where you were introduced to it, my dad is responsible for that. So I, you know, I grew up just hearing Stephen King in the next room, and I I can remember pretending to be asleep on long trips because if we were all asleep, my mom would pull out Stephen King books and read them to my dad. You know, <laughs> so I heard The Mist when I was you know, seven or eight years old and just didn't understand all of it, but it was wonderful and it was spooky. And, and so this is in addition to my mental predilections, I, it's something that I grew up around and I've always enjoyed. Oh, fantastic. So it was, it was never an issue of I'm a lawyer. Now I want to write. It's a, I'm a writer and I'll be a lawyer for now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm chicken. I didn't want to live out of a cardboard box. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think a, a lot of writers are dealing with that right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're coming up on our half hour mark, and I just wanted to kind of wrap things up. So Tales of Terrify, we're, we're a non-paying market, and we're audio only for now. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, but we're one of the few uh, markets in podcasting that accepts uh, previously unpublished work or, or new authors that are just trying to break out. And it means that I get a lot of um, – I, I don't know how to put this nicely, but uh, – Deviant art, <laughs> deviant art type <laughs> submission. My Little Pony suddenly becomes a zombie and is oh killing Dracula. <laughs> That's an exaggeration. I'm not digging on anybody's story. But um, as a successful writer, um, what advice would you have for uh, an up-and-coming writer trying to improve their craft? Well, the first – I mean the first and greatest um, – advice I always have is, is to write because a lot of people, they treat it this way. Let's pretend you go to a doctor and he's about to poke his finger up your butt and <laughs> he, you know, so he's, so it's, you know, it's something awkward and it's very serious and, you know, he's getting on the glove and he, and you hear it snap on and you go, so where'd you go to school? And he goes, oh, well, I didn't go to school, but I went to a doctor once and he sucked. So I figure I can do better than that bend over, you know, and you, you know, you'd, you'd see one of those little cartoon smoke outlines of you. You'd be gone so fast. Mm -hmm. And a lot. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The writers treat it that way. Well, I read a book once that sucked and I could do better than that. So I'm going to barf my own little crap words up onto a page and somebody will magically come along with a magic barf bucket and it'll all turn to gold that will rain down on me. And the reality is the writers that I know that have got successful careers, and I know some huge names. I mean, um, Dean Koontz, I correspond with him periodically and have talked to him numerous times. Brandon Mall, uh, I grew up with, and he's a fantastic guy. James Dashner, Larry Cray. I mean, I could go on. And every one of these guys have treated their writing like an intensive graduate studies program before they ever made it. So they spent 10 years honing their craft, not for 15 minutes a day, but for hours and hours a day. So like when I was a writer, um, or when I was a lawyer, rather, I would, I would get up at six in the morning and I'd work until five or six or seven at night. And I'd come home and play with the family and play with the wife. And then when they all went to bed, I would write from 11 o'clock until two o'clock in the morning. And I did that for 10 years. So yeah, it was, and it, it, I was cranky a lot, you know. <laughs> Sleep is for the weak, right? Like food yeah. and air. <laughs> totally. And this is another reason my wife gets my props for the rest of my life because she put up with that. Mm. Um, but so it's not a, it's not a question of like I'm going to write my first book. P.S. Your first book is going to suck. It's just the way it is. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not a question of just writing a book and having it magically turn to money. You write lots of books. I didn't start making real money until I had written 10 books or so. And I didn't start making real consistent money until I had 15. Same with the screenplays. I wrote 20 before one hit and I started selling some stuff. Um, so the first advice is to write. And the second one is be aware that the market has changed. Um, when I go to conventions, I'll sell books sometimes and, and I'll sit next to other writers and I can always tell the new writers because Someone comes up and goes, oh, what kind of a book do you have? And that's golden, man. That's that's somebody who wants to buy your stuff. Mm-hmm. And 20 minutes later, the writer goes, and then they go out the front door. End <laughs> of chapter one. You know, and, and the person, meanwhile, is going, oh, my gosh, someone kill me because I didn't know I'd be forced to look at this person's baby pictures, basically. You know, mm-hmm. like they don't mm-hmm. care. And they come over to me and I can give them – a short pricey on 20 books in under three minutes. And I mean, get all three, all 20 of them. Mm -hmm. So another thing to be aware of nowadays is that people want to be captured. They want to be grabbed instantly. And it's very helpful to have a concept. It's called a high concept, one that can be communicated in a sentence or maybe two that really gives you a good grabby idea of what's going to happen and how exciting it can be. Like I told you about the loon earlier, Mm -hmm. and I told you in under three sentences the whole idea of the book. The details you don't know, and hopefully there are some surprises along the way, but you know like, hey, that's a cool story about a bunch of crazy people in a crazy prison, and they get out, but they can't leave because of the storm, and there's a monster. Awesome! You know, so... (laughs) You know, that's a lot better than hearing somebody rant for the first 40 minutes about the first 40 pages. And if you can't distill down your book into two sentences, just today's world, 
you're probably not going to be super successful from a point of view of units sold. You might you might sell it as literary fiction because literary fiction is all about people having adultery and gazing at tea leaves. I mean, it's <laughs> not much happens. Um, and that's and that sounds like a rip on literary fiction. It's not. If you like it, cool. It's just that's kind of what it's about. It's about very banal things, and it's about the love of the language that occurs while waxing ephemeral about the <laughs> the banal <laughs> things. And so you might have a literary fiction masterpiece, and it's going to sell to 12 you know English professors across the world. Right. But if you want to make money and sell to people and sell to adults, and especially kids, kids need this, you need to drop them into a world that starts fast, that moves fast from there, and never lets up, and that you can explain in a sentence or two. Mm, fantastic. Okay. Well, um, where can we find you? Uh, I'm actually pretty easy to find. Since my name is Michael Brent, and that's my first name, there's no other first name Michael Brent in the whole world. So if you type that in, you're going to get my Amazon page, you're going to get my website, you're going to get my IMDb page. So you can buy all my books um, on my website or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of those things. Word of warning, there is an underwear model whose first name is Michael and last name is Brent. So if you come up with pictures of a stunning guy with almost no clothes, don't get your hopes up. That's not me. Um, I look like a writer. <laughs> and we all know what those look like. Oh, heck Aww. yeah. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> um, last question, where do we start? Um, I know I personally started with the Colony series and I'm working my way through through the rest of it right now. I've read the first three books. Um, but where would you recommend someone who has never read you before and is interested in starting out? Um, what should be the, the first book of yours that they buy? You know, honestly, that, that's hard. And it's not because like, they're all so good. It's just, they're very different. So mm -hmm. um, the way I would say it is it like, if you like demons, go with apparition. If you like serial killers, go with strangers. If you like ghosts, do twisted or the haunted. If you like monsters, do the loon, you know, e e if you mm -hmm. like zombies, obviously do the colony series. Mm -hmm. um, each one has kind of a, if you like a, an apocalypse, a religious apocalypse, go with dark, this darkness light. They all do very different things. So the nice thing about that is if you like any of those things, you'll probably like that book because they do, they do tend to be reviewed very well and they do tend to sell because, you know, I'll tell you one other hint for new writers. No writer in the world can make a living selling books. I will say that again. No writer in the world can make a living selling books. You make a living getting other people to sell your books. So it has to be something that is so good they grab their friends and chokehold them until they buy it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Michael Brent, thank you so much for being on our show. And I really look forward to finishing up Colony and checking out some of your other work. Um, and thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us. And hopefully a few of our readers will uh, or listeners will come to you. Awesome. My pleasure. And if you ever want me on again, I'm here for you, man. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Philip Oldham, for your interview with Michael Brent Collins. Link to Mr. Collins' website will be in the show notes. Secondly, on to tonight's fiction, which will be read to us by our editor, Rock Manor. You'll hear a bit more about him after the reading. Our story comes from Matt Hayward. Matt Hayward is an Irish Dublin-based guitarist and songwriter. He has written and recorded with various bands and notable musicians, including My Sister's Machine singer Nick Pollock, Clannad singer-bassist 
Ciarn Brennan, Eddie Brickle, Malfunctions guitarist Kevin Wood, and many others. His own band, Lay Sweeper, has become a rock staple in the Irish music scene, gaining good critical reception. Two of Matt's previous projects were signed to Decama Records. And now, Matt Hayward's In the Woods We Wait. My name is Teddy McEvoy. I'm 70 years old. And last night, I lost my wife. I'll soon go and join her myself. Of that, I'm quite sure. In the last 24 hours, my life's changed dramatically. It's funny how such a short time can bring such a large change. I can't afford to sidetrack here. I apologize if I do, but I'm just so tired. I'm so very tired. My arthritis is setting in something fierce, so I need to get this down quick. Before I go back out there, I need you to understand a few things. First of all, I'm certain that tomorrow the tragic deaths of Theodore and Ellie McEvoy will be announced in the local news. They may say in my old age I succumbed to Alzheimer's or maybe even dementia from the loss of my belated wife only 24 hours before me. But of course, they wouldn't know she had gone the day before I did because there would be no bodies. Either way, it's all a lie. Every single word of it. If you're reading this, I'm happy that someone will know the truth and that I didn't write this down in vain. Her comb's on the bed. The white one. The one she used on her hair every morning. It wasn't there a moment ago. I should know. I made the bed when I got back this morning, after my shower. I was caked in mud and God knows what else. My joints were killing me. I needed that hot water bad. I make that bed every day. Force a habit, you know. Her comb is there now. I can see it reflected in Ellie's mirror directly in front of me. I'm sitting at her vanity table. That's why I decided to write this down. Not just what I saw in the woods, but all of it. Even the comb and what I believe to be other hallucinations. I think I'm starting to see things that aren't really there. It's probably due to the bite, an infection perhaps, but thankfully it's on my left arm and I write with my right. I cleaned it in the shower with peroxide and bandaged it. The skin around the wound was a deep pink and it was agonizing to clean. My arm is killing me, even now. But enough of that. I need to stop rambling and get down to the point. Last night, I woke in Brian's field. That's the other end of Pure Mile Road. I must have fainted after hearing the gunshot. I don't remember walking Pure Mile. I guess everything that happened was just too surreal to comprehend. Ellie didn't respond when I shouted her name. She stayed about ten feet ahead of me at all times along Pure Mile, and I just couldn't keep up. God! I screamed my voice hoarse, shouting her name. 
She never even acknowledged me. I cried at being ignored after a while. My throat burned in agony from screaming at her to wait up. My legs hurt, and I had left in such a hurry that I had forgotten the flashlight. She didn't bring one either. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I need to start at the beginning. She'd been in the garden only a few hours before. I could see her through the kitchen window as I washed our dinner dishes. We had been talking about getting a dishwasher earlier that day, and I'd said I'd do the dishes after we ate if she drove me to the hardware store the following day. That would have been today, to pick one out. I never did learn to drive. I guess now I never will either. I depended on her so much. I miss her with all my heart, and I just hope all this is over with soon, so that I don't have to deal with this hurting much longer. I need the pain to go away, both mentally and physically. I think I need to get a glass of water and calm down. I'll be back. Okay, let me see. She was out in the garden, her back to me. I was curious as to what she was doing. She had said she heard something. The valley in Calico is surrounded by woodland, hundreds of acres of it. So strange noises are nothing to worry about. Usually it's just the trees creaking, hunters shooting in and out of season, or some other nonsense. But she said it was singing. It sounds so beautiful, such a sad melody, she said. I chuckled and asked if she was coming back inside. She said she wanted to hear the rest of it first. You can still hear it? I asked. Can't you? She looked at me with faraway eyes. That's when I started to be frightened. Ellie and I were by no means spring chickens. I reached the big seven-zero last February, three years Ellie's senior. We had talked about dementia after Greg, her brother, succumbed to it last year. Although we came to the conclusion that it wasn't something either of us thought we'd ever have to worry about. We both did plenty to keep our minds active, always loved our Scrabble Sundays, had more wit between us both than most folk half our age. Now, I wasn't so sure. I said I couldn't hear anyone singing, straining my ears to hear this melody, hoping I'd hear something, anything. Nothing. She had said, Oh, drawn out. More a breath than a word, barely a whisper. Then she had turned and started towards Pure Mile Road. I called her, thinking she was playing a trick. She had an odd sense of humor. Uh, I just noticed I wrote had instead of has. I better find her soon, because I can't entertain the idea of her being dead another minute. I didn't understand what she was doing, so when she didn't turn back and had reached the end of the street, I power-walked after her, still calling her name. A smile was twitching my lips, I remember, a nervous one. I was still waiting for the prank to happen, and when she reached the start of Pure Mile, I got scared. I called for help, but no one came. 
so I just ran after her as quick as I could. Pure Mile runs parallel to the main road. It's a dirt-packed pathway only for walkers and hikers, and goes through the forest. It's dark, large pines, and a variety of other trees loom overhead, blocking out the sun. The other end opens out onto a natural lake, and further past the lake is what's known as the Miner's Village. It's a barren landscape there used to be a mine in, back in the 50s. I hadn't been up this way in years on account of how steep of a walk it was, and as I followed Ellie, I thought I'd have another heart attack. I could feel my ticker smash my ribcage. could hardly breathe. I was terrified. I never seen her act remotely peculiar before. After chasing her for what seemed like hours, my mind wandering to the worst conclusions, she veered off to the left, off the pathway and up into the woods themselves. She moved so gracefully, as if her age was of no significance. Mine was. I lost sight of her. She glided under tree branches and hopped over rocks, as if she'd done this a thousand times before. The thick pines snapped me in the face. I tripped more than a dozen times and had to keep taking breaks to catch my breath. All the while, I still wheezed her name. I don't mind telling you, as I sat there crying, trying to catch my breath, I felt very old, very alone, and very scared. Then... When I was about to keep going, something caught my attention. I could hear footsteps, fast feet hitting packed dirt. Someone was running. It wasn't coming from Ellie's direction. Someone was running up Pure Mile. They called my name. I shouted to them, letting them know where I was. I sat slightly up the mountain in the thicket of the woods to their left. My voice sounded very weak. Light shining through the trees, making silhouettes of them. Teddy? The man called. He sounded worried. Working his way up through the thick clump of trees, I realized it was Bob White, Sheriff White's young son, also a police officer. When he broke through the last few trees, he looked out of breath and just as scared as I was. Teddy! He exhaled, relieved. What's happened? I heard you calling from my place. Dad was out, so I just took off. Thank God I found you. What's happened? I told him all about Ellie. My throat hurt from the lump in it as I spoke. I'll go find her. You wait here. He sounded like a dog owner telling his pet to stay. I got very angry at the young son of a bitch just then. His mustache looked so stupid on his young face as he spoke, it made me want to punch his lights out all the more. She's my wife, and I'm coming, Bobby. I'm not going to slow you down. I didn't know if that was true or not, but I was determined to find out, and to find her as soon as possible. The next half hour was agonizing, both physically and mentally. I kept my head down letting Bob light the way ahead with his torch. In the glow of light, I could make out the carpet of pines below my feet, and I worried where my wife had gone. I just keep replaying that sense of being ignored over and 
over. We eventually reached a plateau, a clearing in the woods about the length of a football field. No trees grew here. They surrounded it as if they were guarding it. The earth was clear of pine needles. The soil looked spoiled and dark in every direction. Nothing grew here. Bob asked me if I had ever seen this place. I said I hadn't. He bent and scooped a handful of dirt, letting it slide back through his fingers. Soil's ruined. Nothing grows here, he said. Captain fucking obvious. God forgive me, I wanted to hit him so bad. A branch snapped on the far side of the clearing, in the woods. Both of our breathing hitched and caught in our throats. Bob danced his light beam over towards the sound, bathing the wall of trees in a soft glow. Not strong enough in this distance, he said, and started across the clearing. His neck was stretched forth, as if a few more inches ahead would allow him to see better. He was about halfway across when a second branch snapped. Louder. He paused with a gasp, frightened. Then there was silence. He called Ellie's name into it. This is where it got very strange. Something was emerging slowly out of the darkness of the growth. A person. He called her name again, and I stood, starting towards him in the middle of the clearing. My heart pounded, my palms were sweaty, and my lips were dry. My legs felt like jelly as I walked. I called her name, too, sounding scared. We both did. Rustling from the trees, Bob's light focused on the shadow coming forward. It let out a moan, low and ominous. I could hear both Bob and I breathing very loud. It exited the trees and stepped out into the clearing. It looked like a person, only its arms were very long. They reached nearly to its kneecaps. I'd never seen or heard of anything like it. The light shook over the figure, and it took me a moment to realize the thing wasn't the only one moaning. Both Bob and I were, too. My neck felt tense. Its head was a joke of a human's. It had no hair. Its face was long, and its features seemed melted. It's what I imagine a person's face would look like if they had radiation sickness or something. Its skin was a dark shade of gray, and it wore what were formerly clothes. Now they were just unrecognizable shreds of cloth caked in dirt. The only way I know they were formerly clothes is because on its left foot was the remains of what was a sneaker. It hoisted its freakishly long arms above its head and started shuffling towards us. In the moonlight, liquid glistened and dripped from its mouth. It seemed to be salivating. Stop moving! Bob cried out. He undid his gun from its holster with a shaky spare hand and leveled it. I, I'm warning you, stop! My hands were balled up so tight I think my fingers drew blood. A sharp smell hit me, and I realized Bob had pissed his pants. 
He was whimpering like a dog, but never ran. The thing plodded closer. At this distance, I could see its eyes were milky white. No pupils. It got within fifteen feet when Bob warned it again. At ten feet, he fired the first shot. I jerked with fright, and my heart bashed against my chest as the shot echoed through the clearing. My ears rang. The bullet left a gaping hole in the center of the thing's chest, big as a coin. From it slopped a thick, dark, sludgy substance, and a rancid, fishy odor followed. I gagged. The thing didn't seem to notice, just kept shuffling forward, its creepy arms still raised. I remember its mouth was gaping open and closed, repeatedly, like a fish out of water. Its saliva smacked and dripped. Bob fired another couple shots. Once again, it didn't respond. Then it was on us. Looking back, I don't know why we didn't run. It just didn't occur to us, I guess. People act funny when they're terrified. The thing smashed its arms down powerfully on Bob White's hands, knocking the gun away. It let out another moan, this one sounding annoyed. Then, and this is what I still can't accept, it spun quickly on me. I had no time to react. Before I could register what was happening, it had lifted my arm to its mouth and ripped away a mouthful of flesh. I roared. It tore it out, and the pain was like nothing I had ever experienced. I whipped my arm back, still screaming, and ran for the woods, back towards Pure Mile, back towards home. I could hear that Bob was right behind me. We were both yelling, our throats raw. My eyes watered. Blind spots grew in front of me. The pain started to dull, and I realized I was slowing down. Not intentionally. That's where my memory starts to fade. I have a brief glimpse of the ground rushing up towards my face, of Bob White's muffled, faraway voice saying that the thing wasn't following us anymore. I think I was letting out a sound the whole time. I remember feeling hands roll me over and hearing cloth rip. Then I remember the bobbing sensation of being carried. I remember hearing a gunshot soon after. Then, nothing. What I assume was at least a few hours later, I opened my eyes to a gray sky above. My face was damp from the dew on the grass I lay in. I felt nauseous. I sat up slowly. My arm was painfully tender and a little numb. Bob had tied it off with a shirt. A dark crimson stain blossomed underneath. I winced when I flexed my hand. The birds were singing, but it was still dark out. I put it to be about four in the morning. I was in Brian Randolph's field. I could tell because of the white horse in the little stable looking at me from the far end, and because his field sloped steeply upwards, and at the top of it was pure mile. I got up and started toward it. 
I felt very lightheaded and walked very slowly, concentrating on putting one foot in front of the other. I tried to piece together what was happening and just couldn't absorb it. Why had my wife gone out towards that thing? Were there others? How had she known where to go? Too many questions, and I just couldn't, still can't, truly encourage the idea that this was reality. Maybe I had gone senile, and I'm actually in some hospital right now, muttering in an easy chair. I hope so. The nearly hour-long walk back was the longest stretch of time in my life. My thoughts were empty. I was surprised at that, but at the time I just wanted to walk home. I concentrated on getting the scenery slowly past me. When I got home, as I said, I showered, done up my bandages, and surprisingly, I ate. That was only about two hours ago now. Then I stopped to write this. I know for a fact Bob White is dead, and I feel bad for wanting to hit him earlier, especially after seeing how courageous he was when pushed. But I said I'd write down the whole truth and nothing but. Well, what I understand to be the truth, at least. Don't ask me how I know he's dead. I just have a feeling. After hearing the gunshot just after fainting, there's something else there. Just out of reach of memory. But I know it's there and that he is dead. They'll be looking for him by now, I bet. No one would have seen me come home, at least. It was far too early when I got back into town. But leaving, they'll see me leave. I'm going to wrap this up now, because I need to go find my wife. I doubt what I find will be what I want to find. I'm no fool, and I know she's probably not okay. I doubt I'll find her alive. I just hope she's not one of them, one of those creeps. I don't know how that's even possible, but something's telling me it very well could be. Maybe it's this damn bite just screwing with my head. God, it hurts. All I know is that I'm going to put this pen down now, grab my rifle, and head back out towards the clearing before the hallucinations become worse, before the pain becomes too much. This time, I'm not going to run away. I can hear her singing out there now. Ellie was right. It sounds so beautiful. Such a sad melody. That was Matt Hayward's In the Woods We Wait, as read to us by our own editor, Rock Manor. Rock Manor is a voice actor, writer, and producer of a horror audiobook series entitled Manor House. His voice acting has been featured on Tales to Terrify, the No Sleep podcast, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and others. He has acted in theatrical stage plays, including the Players Guild Theater production of A Few Good Men and A Christmas Carol. His alter ego is that of a marketing copywriter. Follow him on Twitter at The Rock Manor. 
And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Take care of each other and come see us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Mm-hmm.